pooping. We all do it. We don't like to talk about it, but we're all curious if we're doing it right. Well, today's your chance to learn more about your digestive system and how it works. Joining us today is the brilliant Dr. Michelle Retz. Dr. Retz is a gastrointestinal specialist who utilizes holistic medicine that treats the cause of illness, restores vitality, and preserves health. On today's episode, we'll be debunking common myths and providing valuable insight on how to properly take care of your gut. Grab a pen and paper because you'll definitely want to take notes on this one. Welcome to the Down to Earth Podcast. We're your hosts, sibling duo, Jonathan and Lorena. In this podcast, we'll be spilling the tea on all things health and wellness related. This podcast is designed to motivate you to take care of your physical, mental, and spiritual health. We'll be bringing on doctors, healers, fitness experts, business leaders, and innovators. Thanks for joining us in our mission of making the world a healthier, happier, and a more down-to-earth place. Here we go. Hi, Dr. Retz. How are you? Good morning. I'm well. How about yourself? We're doing well. We're both super excited to be chatting with you today. You have so much amazing knowledge and expertise, and we're really excited to learn more about your amazing work. And so I'm personally really curious to know what inspired you to go into medicine and specifically to focus on GI health. I'm very lucky in the sense that I've wanted to know what I wanted to do since a very young age. So since I was eight, I've wanted to be a doctor. That's always been my trajectory. My mother was an RN and a really good one and a really good empathetic caring nurse. And my dad was a corporate CPA and then he owned a medical transcription company and he would let me do the payroll <laughs> for a few bucks here and there. So I was kind of around, you know, some of it at a young age and I idolized my mother, I think. And I just, there's a part of me that really likes that. That's curious about the body and health. I would read her RN magazines as a little kid. I would look at the pictures, like the gory detailed pictures. <laughs> I would look at her Grey's Anatomy. I was just fascinated at how we work. I would watch PBS surgeries. They used to show surgery on the PBS channel. I would sit in my grandma's living room and watch the PBS channel. And he's like, really intense surgeries, just fascinated. So, so some of that's innate. I, from a very young age, wanted to be, I think, a traditional allopathic physician. I didn't know there were other options at that point. So I planned on, you know, as I got older, becoming a cardiothoracic surgeon, I thought, well, if I'm going to do this, I want to be the best of the best. And I, the heart, right? The center of the chest, the, the place where all the magic happens, that's what I'm, you know, going to go for. And my junior year in college was when insurance companies really started to change the face of medicine and the flavor around which it was operating when they stopped reimbursing physicians so much and they would say, you can't run that CT or you can't run that MRI. And the decision-making tree didn't end with the physician and the prices went up for everything, you know, and I was watching medical practices shut down because doctors couldn't reach their overhead or they were having to see 40 to 60 patients a day to meet their overhead and their visits became very short. The bedside manner completely changed. And I was kind of worried I was getting ready to enter med school and I was very nervous because I've wanted to do this for so long. I also had friends who were graduating from the medical program and really not loving the paradigm they were walking into. So I was very hesitant about that. So I just took a minute and said, what else is out there? Is there something I'm not aware of? Do I have other options? I hadn't heard about naturopathic medicine. I was in Ohio at the time. Although there are naturopaths practicing there, I wasn't really familiar with it. They weren't licensed. And I found Southwest College of Naturopathic Medicine here in Arizona. My jaw just dropped. I 
hit the floor. I was like, wow, this is everything I'm already interested in anyway. The perfect blend of traditional allopathic medicine meets natural medicine for years, all year round to, you know, residency, two sets of boards, everything you would expect, plus all the natural stuff. So I jumped up and down for like 20 minutes in my room and sort of decided this is it. This is my path. And I went home to my parents who have just gratefully been so supportive of me, even if they didn't necessarily always love what I was doing. And they said, yeah, that sounds like exactly what you should be doing. That really sounds like something you'll be great at. And so they were very supportive. So that's, you know, what led me to naturopathic medicine, I would say. I've always had sort of an interest in Asian culture as well. I don't know if it's past lives or what, you know, so I was interested in Chinese medicine and acupuncture and Ayurvedic medicine and, and yoga and just lots of different traditions. And so it was a natural fit for me in that regard. And then, you know, you go through med school and you have to learn, oh my gosh, everything. And then all the natural modalities. So you don't know what you like and what you don't like. You have to try everything out a little bit, but I really do find that it starts in the gut. And when I started having, you know, taking our nutritional classes with Dr. Mona Morstein, who was the nutrition chair at the school, and then later my mentor during residency, and even now we're good friends, I became, it just became increasingly obvious to me that it all starts with what you put in your mouth and how well that goes from the beginning, you know, in terms of, is it a medicine? Is it your food? Is it a vitamin? What are you putting in there and how well are you absorbing that or not? And how is your lifestyle and how well you're loving or not loving, affecting your ability to do that. So that piqued my interest. And, and as we went, I just became increasingly interested and interested and interested. And so really excelled you know, in, in understanding that. And then, gosh, six years ago, there was a shift, sort of a changing of the guard at the school. Um, Mona stepped down as the nutrition chair, which was a monumental event. I will say she was an amazing naturopath with an extensive, just such, such knowledge. And she was my mentor. And I was really concerned a little bit about who they were going to have step in to teach because I really fundamentally believe that gastroenterology is a, is a core tentpole of good naturopathic medicine and always needs to be considered in, in terms of whatever you're looking at. And I offered to step up to teach her class in her stead, not the entire nutrition program. I, you know, with busy practice, I can't do all of that, but I, I did want to step up and teach the gastroenterology class. And so I got her permission to carry the torch, so to speak, and continue practicing and teaching in the way we had learned. And so that was huge. So I've been teaching the class for six years now at the school to sort of carry the torch, so to speak, and make sure that at least from our perspective, we're continuing to educate naturopaths, future naturopaths, you know, on the fundamentals, on what's really important, on how to assess in our perspective, as well as incorporate and treat integratively. So that's kind of how I came into becoming such a lover of uh, GI health. Thank you so much for that story. I love to ask doctors and especially naturopaths how they got into naturopathic medicine. And it's everyone has such a unique way. And the one common thing that everyone says is that when they found out about naturopathic medicine, this light bulb just went off and they were like, <laughs> this is what I feel like I've always wanted to do, but never really knew it existed, right? Yeah. And I think it's an awareness thing for some of us, just not knowing it existed, that, that modal those modalities are available when we're already healers and light workers, so to speak, and we're already drawn to these certain things anyway, to know that there's a package deal that exists is like, oh my God, you know, it's so exciting to think that you can really facilitate everything you want all in one, in one learning experience is really, really lucky to have that. 
I agree. Now, gut health has been a huge topic these days. And a lot of people just assume that gut health is really just responsible for digestion and elimination, but it plays obviously many roles as well. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of what gut health really entails? There are as many nerves in the gut as there are in the brain. It's actually called the second brain of the body. And the more we study it, the more we realize it is functioning like an independent brain. And is obviously as influenceable as anything else in the body by our nervous system, but it is acting autonomously in many ways. It is that intelligent, that fluid, that adaptable, and that responsive. So we have to give it that kind of credence. We, yes, of course we digest. So everything you take in physically comes in and gets digested. It's a matter of how well you're breaking that down and absorbing the nutrients because whatever's left behind feeds things that either should or shouldn't be there. So that can set you up for illness. But further than that, it's what you take in even on an emotional or energetic level. This is where we take in, where we receive, right? If you think about emotionally, I got so anxious, I felt butterflies in my stomach. It was like a punch in the gut. You know, people, when they're explaining situations they're going through, I really feel tense in my stomach or, you know, they're having these emotional reactions that are centered in the center of their body. You know, there's very much an emotional and hormonal response that happens as well. It's part of that brain experience. And that has to do with serotonin. At least a third of our serotonin receptors that we make all over the body are made in the gut, not in the brain. We mostly think of serotonin as our feel-good hormone. It has to do with our mood, which is true. But a third of those (laughs) receptors are in the gut and very intimately tied to mobility of the gut as well as mood and emotional balance. Um, So that's a huge piece. A lot of the way that we digest our foods affects how well things move forward and backward. Um, So things aren't moving so well, that sets us up for certain illnesses. We have good bacteria that should be there in good amounts, not only to serve as our army, right, as our front doors, our front gate for everything that we put in, in case we're not making enough acid to kill whatever comes in on our food, or in case we don't make enough enzymes to properly break things down, we've got an army there to check and balance, right? Friend or foe, friend or foe, friend or foe. Is that medication safe? I don't know. We'll send it to the liver to find out. There's a whole network of conversations happening. And so you're only as good as your tight junctions. I tell my students like how tight your wall is, your border is, right? And then your army, the forces in front, sort of deciding who gets to come in and who doesn't. And certainly stress and digestion, all these other things in the background affect how well your forces are up front or not, whether they're there or whether they're not. Now that definitely plays into gut health. And that also plays into your susceptibility for food sensitivities, food allergies, infection. It affects motility. Our E. coli make our vitamin K. They make our hormones. If our good flora are out of balance, they may help us recycle our hormones, our estrogen, our progesterone, our testosterone, more than we would like. If we're supposed to eliminate it out of the bowel, if we don't have enough good bacteria to do that, it'll get recycled and go right back to the liver. And then we start to build up our hormones and have problems in that regard. So it plays into vitamin health, you know, emotional health, hormonal health. We get rid of our cholesterol through our gut. So if we're not having daily bowel movements and we're a little constipated, we're not getting rid of our toxins. We're not getting rid of our cholesterol. We're not getting rid of our hormones. And I would say we're not getting rid of our emotional stuff either. You notice people who are 
emotionally suppressed tend to hold stuff in. They probably physically hold stuff in. There's such a mirror mentally and emotionally, as well as with regard to digestion. We're very transparent in that way, I would say. Even with environmental allergies and asthma and some other things, you know, if you've got bugs overgrowing and making toxins, they spill out into the blood and cause symptoms everywhere else in the body. If the nerve that serves the gut, there's a nerve called the vagus nerve. He runs all the way from the stomach all the way down to the the bottom, almost near the bottom of the large intestine. If he's upset for any reason or getting irritated by stomach acid or an ulcer or heartburn, he will spasm all throughout the gut, but he can also spasm in the lungs and cause asthma and cough and other symptoms elsewhere. So, and that affects motility as well. So there's just so many aspects, you know, where one piece intimately ties into another. So I think that probably sums up gut health and all the things we have to think about other than stress as a large umbrella term and how that affects all these background processes. Definitely. Thank you for that. And I don't think enough people speak to that because when we think of gut health, a lot of people just think like, okay, bowel movements, right? But it has such an impact on our emotional health. And, you know, a lot of studies have been done that directly link our gut health to our mood and our brain function. So I'm glad that we're able to talk about that today. Now going to our digestion and our stool, what can our stool be telling us about our health? Many, many things. I love to talk about poop. Patients learn to know that we're going to just talk about it on a regular basis because it's the first best way to see how well you are or aren't absorbing and digesting what's coming out, right? Or isn't coming out. One, how often are you having a bowel movement per day or per week is a question I often you know, ask. You should be having at least one bowel movement a day. Ideally, two to three. You know, Eating in general should stimulate this reflex called the gastrocolic reflex, which means when food's coming in, the large intestine wants to make room down the line. And so it should stimulate a bowel movement. So you know, at least one bowel movement a day would be acceptable. Again, to get out toxins, hormones, and cholesterol. A good bowel movement should be brown, just a regular brown color, well-formed like a sausage, you know, not a pencil-thin sort of stool, but like a sausage thickness. It should sink to the bottom of the bowl. It shouldn't have any undigested food in it other than corn. Corn is normal. There shouldn't be any other undigested food. If you see leafy greens or pieces of pepper or tomato or anything else, that's not good. And that's a sign that you're either not making enough stomach acid or enough pancreatic enzymes. You're not digesting well enough or that there's inflammation on the wall of the small intestine and those enzymes are missing as well. If the stool floats, it's usually a sign that there's extra fat in the stool. And either you're not making enough bile to handle the fats that are in your meal or lipase from the pancreas to also handle the fats. Bile is like the scaffolding that holds up the fatty foods that we eat so that lipase, the enzyme that cuts down the fats, can chew at it, basically. So it's one or both an issue with either the gallbladder and or the pancreas. If the stools are tan or yellowish or grayish in color, that also will mean there's not enough bile and there's an issue with liver or gallbladder, usually gallbladder. There should not be any mucus, which could look like 
uh, clear mucus like you would normally think or bubbles or a little bit of slime on the outside of the stool. If that's present, mucus is just our body's way of protecting itself against inflammation anywhere in the body. So all it's telling you is there's an inflamed, irritated, raw mucosa somewhere and the body's trying to protect itself. So there's some inflammation, but we don't know more than that. There shouldn't be any blood in the stool either. And that can look like bright red specks in the stool or around it or little dots on the toilet paper or even coffee grounds or something black or tarry. If it's bright red, it usually means there's a little bit of bleeding down close to the bottom, the end of the digestive tract, the end of the colon, something like a hemorrhoid or a little tear, you know, or a potentially a polyp that's getting rubbed as the stool is passing by. Those things can often be aggravated by constipation or straining, right, where the tissue gets cut a little bit and then it bleeds a little. If it's really significant amount of blood, obviously you need to see somebody to have that checked out. If it's darker, like a tarry black, um, or it looks like coffee grounds, it means there is bleeding, but it's coming from higher up, somewhere else like the small intestine or the stomach. It could be indicative of bleeding like an ulcer um, more commonly. It could be a mass or something else, but usually like a, a bleeding ulcer or a little tear um, in the lining. You know, that's normally, those are things you want to not see in your stool. <laughs> and there shouldn't be any pain. You shouldn't have to strain. You should be able to normally push and the bowel movement comes out rather easily. It shouldn't hurt and it should feel complete. You should be able to feel like you emptied your bowels at that one time. It's so interesting and fascinating how much our stool really tells us about our health and, you know, gives us signs if maybe like something's wrong. Yeah. So if you're not looking, just turn around real quick, just take a peek, just see what you see because it really is giving you information. And if you come see me, I'm going to ask. <laughs> Definitely. And even, you know, you can pull up the Bristol stool chart and look yes. at that and see where you're at as well. Yep, exactly. Now, we're talking about stool and all of the information that it could be telling us about our health. How about gas? How about it? Yeah, because gas is, you know, <laughs> a big part of all of our lives For and sure. <laughs> something we all experience. Yes. And obviously, you know, different people have different, obviously, types of gas and different characteristics to their gas. And I'm curious mm -hmm. what our gas is telling us. So bloating, belching, and gas, actually passing gas, are all different forms of kind of the same kind of gas. Gas can be formed for many reasons. Usually, or a really common one, I mean, there can be a little bit of gas, right? A little bit every day is fine in small amounts, and it shouldn't hurt you. You shouldn't feel bloated or see visible distension in your stomach as if you look like you're pregnant, and it shouldn't smell particularly bad. So a normal bit of gas and a normal little belches after a meal, nothing excessive and nothing that goes on throughout the day, that's normal. There is a little bit of gas that's normal for all of us. You know what your normal is. But if you have increased, let's start with bloating and belching, it can start, I mean, it depends on where the gas is. So if it's higher up, almost immediately, you know, as soon as you start eating, kind of right where the stomach is, right under the sternum, it's really indicative of either the stomach or the pancreas, maybe having an issue. Maybe you're not making enough stomach acid or pancreatic enzymes, and you're not digesting your food as well. If you feel like the food is sitting there like a stone and it's not moving, that automatically means you're not making enough stomach acid. That's ind really indicative of not enough stomach acid. If you feel bloated or gassier around the belly button, the small intestine is around the belly button. And that really is usually due to not enough pancreatic enzymes 
And then when that happens, what's really happening is if you don't have enough acid or enzymes to digest your food, think about the stomach, right? It, it just mashes everything up to this really nice mush, right? And that low acidity level, that low pH tells the pancreas, hey, we've got some acidic food coming. You better make some bicarb, get your enzyme, get this train rolling forward. He's like, okay, cool. But if you don't make enough acid and that pH isn't where it's supposed to be, the pancreas doesn't get the message. He's like, I had no idea we were eating. Are you serious right now? Okay, I'll put some enzymes out, you know, but it's not going to be like I normally do. So it's an incomplete digestive process. And you got bigger chunks of food coming down the line through the small intestine. And you have enzymes on the wall of the intestine that are ready to chew up really nicely mushed up food. If they're not really nicely mushed up and they're in large chunks, they too are like, are you serious? Really? Like we're supposed to digest this whole big rock of food? Okay. And they'll do their best, but they're not going to be able to get it as evenly digested as it's designed to be. And so that alone can cause gas. When you're not fully digesting your food, it can kick up a loss. But then also you have bacteria in that area and further down the line, even in the large intestine. And some of those bacteria are okay in small amounts, but some of them, if they're fed well, can overgrow. And so they also make gas and toxins just as a result of being fed. It's just part of their fermentation. That's how they eat. And so when you're feeding them, because you're not digesting so well, they make more gas. And so that can be a sign of an imbalance, either in your good flora, not having enough of your good guys, or starting to feed some of the more neutral guys that can become a little bit of a problem. Or if there's a bacteria that's not supposed to be there, but he was fine in small amounts, but now you're feeding him, he's going to kick up some dust too, make more gas and make more toxins. And so that's going to make you feel bloated or gassy wherever that process is happening. It's usually a little higher up though if it's like the stomach or the early small intestine. The lower down it gets or on the sides of the abdomen, that tends to be the large intestine. So way down low in the abdomen, down in the center, and right along the right and left sides. I mean, the, the large intestine does go all the way across the top of the middle as well. So it can be hard to tell where it is if it's just in the top middle. But if it's in those other locations, that usually indicates that it's in the large intestine. And if you're getting a lot of gas, I mean, it can be sharp pains, right? That often will feel better if you pass gas or if you belch. If you're belching and that feels better, usually means the gas is higher up, like in the small intestine, earlier in the digestive process. If it feels better when you pass gas, it's usually because it's down lower, the issue is more of a large intestine issue. If the gas itself that you're passing down low is particularly foul or sulfur or rotten eggs smelling, one that can be due to if you have too much protein in your diet or too much sulfur-containing foods like eggs or broccoli, Brussels sprouts or cauliflower, those foods are really rich in sulfur. So if you're getting a lot of that, okay, that can change the smell of your gas. But if that's not necessarily the case, then it's really more toxins that are being made by the bugs, by the bacteria. And that foul smell is the gases that they're making, hydrogen, methane, and hydrogen sulfide. So it's more indicative that you've got a bacterial issue, likely a little infection or some overgrowth you know, even yeast. So those can be issues. If the belching is particularly foul smelling, it usually is an indication of stagnation and that the food is, is sitting and sort of fermenting and, you know, not rotting necessarily, but it's not moving through and you're belching it. You're not digesting it well. There's a problem early in the digestive process. 
with the stomach, the pancreas, the gallbladder, and the small intestine probably. So that's more so helpful. And then I don't know if you guys have heard about SIBO, small intestine bowel overgrowth. Have you heard that term at all? Yes, of course. (laughs) Yes. So I'm sorry, I don't know your familiarity with it, but in the last five years, I would say this diagnosis has become increasingly common as an underlying cause for IBS, but I would say for so many digestive issues. But gas has to be present as a main symptom to be considering that as a concern for potentially what's going on with someone. What that looks like is everything you eat turns to gas. Every supplement you take turns to gas. You wake up in the morning and you feel pretty good. The stomach's flat. You don't feel really distended or bloated. And as the day goes on, whether you're eating or not, you just fill up with gas and you look pregnant and you're belching, you're passing gas and it's all over the tummy. It doesn't, there's not one place or another that it is or isn't. Usually the gas can be foul, but it doesn't have to be. And you can have any of the other signs that you're not digesting well, discomfort, belching, bloating, gas, those, you know, and pain, those are the most common, but the gas really has to be there. These folks have bacteria in the small intestine where it should not be. Either it came from the large intestine or it came from like a food poisoning where you weren't able to clear the infection and it stayed, it got to stay around. Or they may have underlying motility issues where they're not able to flush the gut out, move out what needs to get moved out. And the bacteria that are there get first pass at everything you put in your mouth, your food, your supplements, your vitamins, everything, and they turn it to gas. So you're literally feeding them and just fermenting everything. So when you try digestive or a probiotic or a gut healing powder, you feel worse. You don't feel better. When you try fiber because you're constipated, you feel worse. You don't feel better. And you can be constipated or have diarrhea either way. If you had to take an antibiotic for any reason, ear infection, dental procedure, you know, anything else, you feel better. All your GI symptoms get better because it's actually killing the infection. Those are indications that small intestine bowel overgrowth might be a part of your gas situation. And that's kind of a different bird of a different feather, but those symptoms, you know, are definitely different than what we've kind of been talking about. So totally. And I like that earlier you brought up, it might be that there's not enough stomach acid. And for a long time, people thought that a lot of the conditions were due to too much stomach acid. Yes, it's definitely. And I teach this to my students a naturopathic notion. And I see this far more than having too much stomach acid. It sounds counterintuitive. Why would I have heartburn if I don't make enough stomach acid? That seems silly, right? How would I have, you know, I think in terms of gas and bloating and not digesting properly, it makes sense. But oftentimes heartburn goes along with that. And it seems funny. Why would I have burning if I don't make enough acid? It's because there's a door, a sphincter, like a door between the stomach and the esophagus. And how much stomach acid you produce determines whether that door closes or stays open so you can get ready to eat your food. And normally you make enough. It's like, hey, we're digesting. You guys don't want any part of this. Close the door. We don't want anything going into the esophagus, you know? And so they they close the door. They get it. They see the pH and they close the door. But if you don't make enough, the door stays open. And the little bit or medium amount that you do make gets to splash up into the esophagus and cause heartburn or redness and irritation or some other symptoms, possibly even an ulceration. 
And that's really more from not having enough stomach acid to shut that door. And there's several foods that also keep that door open as well. So we find when we support making more stomach acid or providing that a little bit, then that door closes and those symptoms go away. And then people really feel a lot better that they're digesting better. Food moves through, bowel movements look great. The food starts to disappear in their stool. You know, they can see and feel that they're digesting better far more common than not. And for some, it's they just come into the world and they just don't make a lot. And it's typical, even if we, you don't have that issue at a young age, we automatically just make less stomach acid as we age. So you'll see that more commonly just as you're, as you're aging. You're just not as <laughs> robust in many ways as you were when you were 20, you know, when you're 70. And so you just make a little less stomach acid and a little less enzymes. So that's common in our older populations as well. It makes actually a lot of sense when you think about it. Now, if someone is suspecting that they may have SIBO, what are some tests that they should have their doctor run for them? And then if someone is just getting occasional bloating, I know naturopathic medicine has so many amazing tools that can help combat bloat. So I'm curious if you have any favorite tips. From a naturopathic perspective, we're always going to treat the cause. So while we may give things to help someone feel better in the moment, we're never seeking to palliate any symptom. So it would only be to help ease while we're investigating and treating the cause. So for small intestine bowel overgrowth or SIBO, you're really trying to establish, do they have an infection and or do we know where it came from? The other issue can be small intestine fungal overgrowth for which there are no tests. You have to kind of surmise that from doing a stool test. Is that a potential thing we need to worry about as well? With SIBO, you need to do a breath test. There are two different types of tests that you can do, glucose test and a lactulose test. I've seen gastros run both, but the literature and the evidence uh, definitely points toward the lactulose breath test being the best test. Glucose is a sugar that we as humans can digest. So when we drink a sugar drink made of glucose and we blow into some tubes and we measure how much gas we're making, part of that is just gas we ferment on our own because we can digest glucose. It's just a sugar. So bacteria can digest that and make gas, but so can we. So it's not as great of a test for telling us, oh, it's just from bacteria. You have extra bacteria. The glucose also doesn't get all the way down into the small intestine, all the way down to the ileum near the large intestine. It just doesn't give us as complete an indication. The lactulose is a sugar that we as humans cannot digest. So if you take a drink of it and you're blowing into some tubes and we're measuring how much gas you make, if you're making any extra, it can only be from bacteria. So it's very clear that you have bacteria where they should not be. And then we're measuring whether that gas is hydrogen, methane, hydrogen sulfide. So we can tell a little bit about the type of bacteria that you have and the type of treatment that you might need. And that lactulose sugar does go all the way down to the ileum, the long, the last part of the small intestine. So it's a more complete test. Neither of them are perfect. I mean, they probably have 85 to 90% sensitivity and specificity in terms of what they're looking for and how accurate they are. Nothing's perfect. It's really hard the deeper down you go in the intestine to, you know, to feel good about the results if you're not sending a scope down there. But definitely the results are more reliable with the lactulose test. So it's a 10-tube lactulose breath test. The physicians should really know, you know, how to order that. But I see gastros ordering the glucose test and the results come up negative and saying, sorry, this isn't a cause of what's going on with your IBS. We need to look elsewhere. And those patients will come to me, will repeat the test with the lactulose and they're off the charts. 
So it's just that that test wasn't as accurate and missed, you know, missed a few things. And when we treat, definitely we get results. So there isn't a stool test that can diagnose SIBO. There isn't a food sensitivity test that can diagnose it. Although certainly food sensitivities could be an issue because if bacteria are in the wrong place, they make toxins that are inflammatory and poke holes in the gut and can cause issues with foods. But if you treat the infection and heal the lining, those food issues go away. So we really want to look for what's the underlying infection there and and diagnose that as best we can. Sometimes a stool test will have been run ahead of time to rule out infection. And oftentimes I will do those first. It just depends on the way the case presents, what symptoms are there. Good history is really the best tool a doctor has. But if a stool test has been run and we know there's an infection in the large intestine and or yeast, it's likely that the infection, if they do the breath test and it's positive, that we found the source of the infection, we know what it is we're treating. And then we also may know whether or not we have yeast issues there. Yeast is common in the large intestine, but it, now we're finding it in the small intestine as an issue. And the top three companies that do the SIBO breath test don't have a way to diagnose whether yeast is present or not. You either have to do a stool test and do a good history and either know or not know that you need to treat it or go ahead and and treat presumptively or have a questionnaire or a good way to flush out whether you think yeast is present in that patient so that you should treat it as well. That's fascinating and definitely good to know and to keep in mind if anyone out there listening, you know, is having any sort of discomfort in their digestion, then it's definitely important to know all the different tests that could be done to look into it. Something I wanted to, to chat with you a little bit about is holding it in. So when we let our audience know that you'd be coming on today, a lot of people from our audience are in relationships or, you know, not at this time, but work in offices. Quarantining. Exactly. Quarantining where you're with your significant other or you know family members a lot more than yeah. you might typically be or even if you work mm-hmm. in an office where there's just you know one small shared bathroom we've all been guilty of having to hold it in before and so yeah. i just like to get your take on holding it in because i read a lot of different articles on the potential damage that we could be doing when we hold it in for too long yeah so never good i mean really want to listen to the body as best you can. Obviously, we're not trying to have embarrassing situations. And that's really the number one reason why folks don't listen to their bodies. Oh, the bathroom is by Johnny's office. I like Johnny. I don't want Johnny to know that I poop and that it smells and I'm just not going to poop. I'll wait till I get home. It's embarrassing. It's uncomfortable. It's not my house, you know, whatever it might be, or young children who feel embarrassed about that bodily process, sort of holding that in. There's an emotional aspect to that as well, whether we're aware of that or not, but anytime you, so it's a conversation, the brain, you know, as the stool moves down, there are stretch receptors, there's nerves there that are like, oh, oh good. Oh, we're going to poop. Good. Let's get ready. You should find a bathroom in the next few minutes, you know, just so you know. So that's that sensation of, oh, okay, I need to have a bowel movement. And the brain's like, yeah, you should listen. So when you override that voluntarily, you're like, yeah, that's not going to happen. The stool that's there and ready to go actually moves upward back into the large intestine, into the colon. And the colon, all it does is dehydrate. All it does is suck water out as the kidneys tell it, hey, we need more water. We need more water. We need a little more minerals. That's all it does. So the longer your stool stays in there, the more water you're drawing from it. And the more, you know, if there's any minerals left, you may take a few, but really it's just more water. So the harder, drier, and more well-formed and packed the stool gets. And after a certain amount of time, the nerves that are firing from the brain telling it, you should go, we need to go, we need to get rid of this. 
that talk stops happening. It's like if you, you know, if you're talking to anyone for so long and they don't listen to you, you're like, okay, I'm just going to stop talking. You know, there's no point. You're not listening to me. I'm not going to waste my energy. And so then we, you know, you can get to the point where you stop, you ignore the urge to go so much. You stop having the urge to go right? And the body loses its innate wisdom of needing to go, needing to eliminate, and then it just stops having it. So you almost have to retrain those brain, your brain, you know, in that conversation. And if that's happened and folks are in that, like, I don't poop and I don't care. They don't really feel the need to go, but they're not feeling too bad about it because it's kind of early. That's, I would say, a good point to retrain that person or that child, whoever it might be, to train their body to go to the restroom and and just be in the restroom on the toilet in the position that helps the bowels move after a meal. So each time they eat, trying to facilitate that conversation again, like, are you there? Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. You know, that kind of thing at first. And then listening to those urges as they start to come back and going, ooh, ooh, is that what I think it is? I think I should go. You know, like trying to really listen to the body and when you need to go, to go if that's not the conversation already. If it's really far gone, you know, and once that conversation stops happening, the bowel can be impacted. The nerves, it can be called atonic constipation where you literally just, there's like no musculature, no peristalsis, no movement, right? It just gives up and just kind of poops out pardon the pun, but it just really doesn't have the, like the wherewithal, the muscular wherewithal to go because the nerves aren't firing and the nerves are what serve the muscles, right? So we have to back it up and retrain the muscles, retrain the brain. And then emotionally we want to retain, right? So if you, whatever it is we're suppressing or we're not getting out is not serving us, the body automatically just, just holds fear, anger, worry about the opinion of others, insecurity. These are fundamental cracks in our emotional health. And physically, this is just how they're manifesting. So then treat the cause from my perspective would be, and you'll often see when we get at that root and we teach folks how to express, how to have healthy boundaries, how to tactfully, respectfully say what they need to say while honoring themselves and getting rid of what's not serving them or what might be traumatic, they automatically have a bowel movement. The minute they release the body, let's go. It's not a nerve issue. It's not a brain issue. It's the conversation was happening. It's an emotional issue. And so once that issue is dealt with, the body's like, (laughs) woohoo, just let's go. And they'll go, my God, I had the best bowel movement, you know, and I feel (laughs) so good because they want their crap out. Right. So it's so interesting. And even with our, that? Yeah. And even with our dogs, I notice yeah. like after they go to the bathroom, they're in such a good mood and they're like running oh, around and they feel light yes, and they feel they good. They feel so good. I know. My German a, shepherd the same. He just gets yeah, so surprised. A, like, oh, good. That looks great. My body's good. I absorb what I needed to. I, you know, I got rid of what I didn't and on with my day. Great. You know? Exactly. And it's crazy. There's such a stigma to it. And I mean, again, we've all been guilty of it, of not being super open about that side of our health and our needs. But hearing that from you now, for anyone listening, doctor's orders, be more open about it. (laughs) And make sure that you're getting it out. (laughs) Absolutely. And I mean, creating the culture in the home, I think, is where it starts, right? So if you have little ones, educating that poop is the food that we don't use. It's our body's way of getting rid of what we don't need. We took everything else that we needed and it decided, I don't need this. So we've got to get it out, right? And, you know, teach my three-year-old, I'm like, what color should your poop be? Brown. Should it float or should it sink? It should sink. Should there be food (laughs) in it? No. 
what does your poop look like? And he turns around and he looks at it and then we go through it. So I'm already just teaching him, this is just how poop looks. This is, you should look at it. It shouldn't hurt. You should go poop when you need to. So he's you know, ready. <laughs> he's a good pooper. But uh, what's your culture? What's your, one, what's your family dynamic? How emotionally in tune and emotionally intelligent are the folks that are around, right? And, and how communicative and how open and supportive because of that emotional aspect, right? If you're not feeling supported, if you feel like you can't be heard, if you feel like you can't express something and be supported, even if it's incongruence with your environment, there's a retention and that can manifest in other ways, right? So Definitely. it's not just looking at this one thing that's happening like, wow, Jessica's really not going to the bathroom. It's like, well, what else could it be? One, it could just be a food sensitivity or, you know, she's not getting enough water, not getting enough fiber, you know, but we're talking about holding it in, knowing we need to go and not going, right? Choosing not to go is a different thing. And then just, okay, so turn the fan on, get a nice little, you know, poopery essential oil spray, make it smell good so they just aren't feeling insecure about it or everybody has their own bathroom or their own time or that kind of thing, you know, so we're just trying to respect respect everybody's bodily needs as we can, as much as we can. And just understand like this is, we're here to do this. So, you know, no big deal. Just like peeing. We got to it. It's just about normalizing yeah. the conversation and looking at the yes. person as a whole and seeing what else is going on in their lives. Now you spoke about food sensitivities a little bit. Are you a fan of food allergy panels? Sure. And there's a difference between food allergies and food sensitivities and I do both. And I definitely am a fan for sure. I would say, um, food allergies are, they come from one antibody called an IgE antibody, which is an immediate response within zero to 12 hours of you eating something you have, you know, itching, rash, hives, swollen lips, itchy tongue, itchy mouth, throat closing, like alarming, right? Symptoms that need to be dealt with possibly with an EpiPen or Benadryl. And food sensitivities are a delayed reaction by another antibody, IgG, that can happen up to three days after you eat that food. So a much slower, much less alarming response, but that can lead to symptoms all over the body that look like GI distress, but also acne, eczema, psoriasis, autoimmune concerns, rashes, fatigue, brain fog, joint pain, lots of different things. And so it's interesting because the conversation and what I teach my students has changed in the last six years or so, I would say, based on evidence we're finding. There's so much we don't know about the gut, I would say, in terms of the flora and how many. You are more, there are more cells that are not you in your body than are you right? And so we have more bugs, 3 trillion bugs in our gut. And it's understanding what is going on in there and what are we susceptible to and how does that affect our metabolism? I think that continues to change the conversation about disease and what we know it to be. So whereas in the past when folks would have lots of GI issues, IBS, Crohn's, you know, ulcerative colitis, just bloating, belching, gas, and pain, food sensitivity tests were one of the first things to be run. Now we see a lot of evidence for infection and overgrowth of your own good bacteria as being really strong causes for food sensitivities, leaky gut, and even food allergies, that it makes sense to rule out infection first. And I've seen this firsthand with my patients who'll come to me with beautiful food sensitivity tests, good companies that I trust, and they have leaky gut, which means they're showing to react to 15 or 20 foods or more on a piece of paper, really overwhelming, right? Level of inflammation and not, not doing well with a lot of foods. 
and they eliminated those foods and they only felt so well. There just still was a level of just feeling ill and still having symptoms. So we did a stool test to rule out infection and lo and behold, we'll find a couple things. When we treat those infections and get rid of them, then their food intolerances go away. I mean, they're able to eat the things that looked like three out of three, a a very bad food sensitivity on a piece of paper. When we heal the lining and kill the infection, they're able to have those foods no problem. So what the conversation has changed to is rule out infection first, rule out imbalances in your flora, rule out a yeast overgrowth or bacterial overgrowth or possible parasite as a cause of infection because those toxins will poke holes in the gut lining and allow the foods to get in and cause an immune reaction. And it'll look just like a food sensitivity, but treat the cause, right? What's the cause? Is it just a food reaction or is it an infection, right? So the order in which the testing occurs now, I would say for me at least is changing. And that's been really helpful for my patients to eliminate that first. And oftentimes that takes care of it. Definitely. And I feel like a lot of people still don't know about leaky gut yet and food sensitivities and how sure. you know, just because a certain food might be healthy or accept that as being healthy, doesn't mean that it agrees with your body and is serving your gut. Right. And what is a food sensitivity? That's like a funny word. Well, it's an immune reaction to a portion of a food, a constituent in the food. Oftentimes it's to a protein in the food, but it can be to an oil, to a starch, to a chemical, right? A pesticide or anything else. But usually it's a protein. When we say you have a gluten sensitivity or a wheat sensitivity, you're reacting to the proteins, gluten and gliadin. When you're sensitive to dairy, you're not lactose intolerant. It's not the sugar, it's it's whey and casein proteins. Mm -hmm. When you have an egg sensitivity, it's to the proteins that are in the egg usually. And so it's an immune response. Your immune system has decided that protein looks like something else that it doesn't like, and it's trying to kill it and get rid of it. And it's doing a good job as its immune system. The question is like, what's it confusing it with? Why, how did we get to that point? So we have to question, okay, what are all the things that could stimulate the immune system to confuse something? Infection is probably the first thing we have to think of, which is why I was talking about infection earlier. But there are other sources of infection, chronic viruses like uh, Epstein-Barr virus and cytomegalovirus. These are two viruses that cause mono that are constantly in the body and they can stimulate the body chronically over time or Lyme disease or other bacterial infections that might be anywhere else. Anything that's quiet in the body that gets to stay in the body for a while, but can come out under periods of stress, grief, illness, trauma, big life changes, that virus or bacteria can come back out and challenge the immune system. And when it's all hot and bothered and trying to get that virus back to where it should go, it can confuse a protein in that virus with a protein in your food. And every time you eat that food, it thinks it's killing the virus. It thinks it's serving you by getting that infection put back where it belongs. But it's not. It's confused, right? So it kicks up this inflammatory reaction against this food every time you eat it. And then it potentially could see that protein somewhere else in your body, like your joints or your skin or your thyroid, and confuse it. And every time you eat that food, then it goes and attacks a part of your body because it looks exactly the same as the virus, which looked the same as the food, which now looks the same as your thyroid. And that's kind of how an autoimmune concern can be born from a food reaction. 
So that's how infection can stimulate the immune system. The other things that we see are issues with digestion that we've kind of already talked about. So if you're not digesting well, meaning you're not making enough stomach acid, you're not making enough pancreatic enzymes or bile, if you don't have good motility, if the gut's not moving forward in the way that it should, and that has to do sometimes with serotonin as well, and or you're taking in toxins, alcohol, cigarettes, pesticides, nitrates on your red meat, other things that just come in from our food, those definitely will just poke holes in the lining themselves. But if we're not digesting properly, we've got huge amounts of food coming down, like I said, a lot of proteins there, and the immune system's just hanging out in that mucus lining, trying to decide whether everything's a friend or a foe. And if it's too big and it's too hard, sometimes it decides it's a foe. And it just doesn't like those large amounts of food coming in and decides to get rid of them by an immune response. And so that's another way that you can create food sensitivities as well. It's amazing how everything sort of comes full circle and how just a simple dietary choice that we make could have such a large impact on our gut health and on our overall health. <laughs> I know. And then there's the choices we don't make that just good old mom and dad gave us. You know, yeah. there is a, a little bit of a genetic piece too. So if a child had one parent with a food sensitivity has about a 30 to 35% chance of having one. Wow. And if both parents had at least one food sensitivity, there's 65 to 70% chance of that child having a food sensitivity. So there definitely is a genetic as well as an environmental component. So that's incredible. So that plays into it. Yeah, Hopefully that, that makes sense. It does. And, you uh, you explain it so clearly. <laughs> well, I hope so. Food allergies are irreversible. Once you get to that allergy point, the immune system will always react to it. It will not back down. It will not not have a response to that food protein or whatever it is. Food sensitivities are reversible. So the idea here is to remove the offending factor, calm the immune system down, right? Calm down the inflammation, heal the lining, help the digestion work better, get rid of any infection that may be the cause behind it. And then we see that people tolerate those foods much better. So you can actually reverse a food sensitivity. Some folks will say, you know, may still always have a minor reaction to some foods. And for them, it'll just be their decision once they're healed to partake in that food or not, knowing it may cause a little indigestion, may cause a little belching, may cause a little gas, but that's up to them at that point. So hopefully Definitely. that helps differentiate between the two. Definitely. I just learned so much from hearing you say that. And you know, the, the whole gut health industry and digestive industry has become very popular over the last few years. And we see so many supplements coming out and so many foods that are now, you know, fortified with probiotics and prebiotics. And there's just so many new additions to products that just weren't existent, I'd say, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And so I'm just curious what your take is on good gut healthy foods and the proper mm -hmm. supplements that support our gut as well. Yeah, it's overwhelming when you're looking for support. You're like, oh my God, even if you go to Sprouts, it's it's really hard to tell what's a good, you know, or your natural health food store, what's a good yeah. product versus not, you know. Exactly. Dietarily, eating as cleanly as you can always helps. Not every food you eat needs to be organic. And certainly with budgets as they are, you know, that's not always an answer for a family anyway. But Environmental Working Group is a fantastic website, ewg.org, that will give you the clean 15 and the dirty dozen. So the clean 15 are the top 15 vegetables and fruits that you can eat that do not need to be organic because they're not heavily sprayed. 
And the dirty dozen are the top 12 fruits and vegetables that are the most heavily sprayed that you should always eat organically. And they change year to year. They put out an annual list and they make little wallet sized lists, which are really helpful for the grocery store you can put on the fridge. So that's the first thing I would say is just trying to eliminate toxins and things coming in on your food because they do disrupt gut health. And the other thing would be eating as close to the earth as possible, as close to the way food was intended to be originally, you know, grown. That means non-GMO, non-genetically modified food. Genetically modified food has different proteins in it. And now we just talked about proteins, right? And how our immune Mm -hmm. system can react to them. So genetically engineered soy. And when we change the DNA of our corn or other vegetables, we're changing proteins and the immune system knows it. When you stick soy protein isolate into a processed product, you're not eating tofu or tempeh or edamame or miso. You're eating soy protein. You're eating some random piece of something from somewhere. Your body's like, what's that? Mm -hmm. You know, what is that? If you give me tofu, I know what all that is. And I see the (laughs) soy protein in there, but I don't get soy protein isolate. So the less processed, the less genetically modified and engineered we can get, the better, because that's the way our bodies intuitively were designed to see food as the whole, right? Clean eating then, you know, just not processed food. So not refined white flour, refined white sugar. We want whole grains, right? Really Mm -hmm. whole grains. So white bread and white rice, not great. Very inflammatory and very devoid of nutrients. There's nothing there that's going to feed you. There's no antioxidants that are going to heal any inflammation. So if you're eating grains, you know, whole grains, whole wheat, quinoa, brown rice. If you're eating, I would say not a lot of sugar, not a lot of processed foods, more in the fresh food section. Shop around the periphery of the grocery store. You've probably heard, don't shop so much in the aisles on those shelf-stable foods because there's a bunch of crap in it that keeps it shelf-stable for months at a time. That's not how it works in Mother Nature. Mm -hmm. And also, we're overcooking our foods. We're, we're nuking our foods a lot. We're steaming our foods too much. And you do leach nutrients from your food when you do that. If you're steaming or cooking, try not to steam or cook your vegetables higher than medium heat. You can steam vegetables at medium heat, get it to boiling, and then reduce it to medium heat. And you can steam broccoli and cauliflower at 12 minutes. You know, I mean, you don't need, it doesn't need to be overdone. That you want them to have a little bit of crunch to them still, so you know there's still some tenacity and nutrients in the vegetable. Not a lot, but I think we're overcooking our food. And then we're not getting enough raw foods. We're not, you know... Raw foods stimulate our stomach and pancreas' ability to make stomach acid and make digestive enzymes. The more we cook our foods, the less we're requiring them to step up and digest. They don't have to digest it. It's mush, right? It's soft. They're like, well, I got a half an hour. What are you doing, John? I'm just hanging out. You know, let's talk. <laughs> so they sit back and they're just like, yeah, that looks great. That looks great. They don't really have to work as hard, right? So we're just not getting as much raw food. So eat salads, eat bell peppers, cherry tomatoes, cucumbers, carrots with hummus, you know, just having more broccoli, cauliflower, just more little raw snacks, apples, you know, raw fruits, not always things that are cooked or softened necessarily is also good for digestion. And we've moved away from having bitters in our diet. These are foods that stimulate digestion as well. They bring blood and circulation to the digestive tract, but they also stimulate acid and, and enzyme production. So, 
dandelion, artichoke, avocados, beets, arugula, our leafy greens. These are foods that help stimulate bile flow in the liver and the gallbladder, as well as fennel and anise. Some of the herbs we used to use in India cuisine, you'll see they always take a spoonful of like fennel and anise at the end of the meal. Those mm -hmm. are carminatives. Those are herbs that help with gas production. They help enzyme production, but they also help digest our food. And so we get a little gassier. You know, we're, we've gotten away from having these things as part of our digestive process. I think being present in your meal is of utmost importance. We're running our rat race life. We're going to a drive through and eating something while we're driving. We're snacking on this while we're doing something else. What's to be said for being present, for being one, grateful for the food that you've got, whether it's organic or not, just grateful that you have it. If it's not organic, just bless your food, right? Take yeah. a minute. But more you can prepare it, the more you have your hands in your food, the sounds, the smells, the sights of the kitchen. It's a process. It's a rhythm. There's music. There's conversation. It's an event, right? You're paying attention. And then sitting with your food, creating a culture of we're going to sit here. Even if it's just for 20 minutes, we're all going to sit here and we're going to have dinner and we're not going to have our phones and we're going to be present. We're going to enjoy our food. You know, having the children pick their vegetables for the week. Okay, John, it's your day. What do you want? Green beans or this? Or they go to the store and they have their hand in the fruits and the veggies. They get to touch it, pick out a good one, and then they get to pick their vegetables for dinner. So just starting young and creating an interest, understanding where food comes from, whether that's gardening at home, a community garden, learning about it on YouTube, whatever it is, from the dirt to the table is really important. I think we've just gotten away from that. There's lots of, even if you're in the city, you can grow amazing hydroponic gardens on your window, right on your terrace or on your like screen door, you know, just where it can get good light. There's easy ways to get indoor gardens now. So those are just, just dietarily some fundamentals for gut health right there. And then fermented foods absolutely do increase our own natural probiotics. So fermented foods are great. So you can always do that. And then when we're looking at supplements, it is overwhelming. And, and certainly I'd have to speak more specifically if you had a concern, but if we're looking at like probiotics and prebiotics, I think I heard you mention, so I can speak to that for sure. And you can ask some other questions. I'm really cautious and I teach my students to be really cautious about using support that has prebiotics. Prebiotics are fructooligosaccharides. They're natural sugars that are food for the bacteria. So it's thought to help keep them more robust so that when you're taking it, you're feeding your good population. But if there's anything in there that shouldn't be in there, you're feeding that as well. And unless you're very clear as a physician, I guess for me, unless I'm very clear on what I'm treating, I do hesitate to give extra food. So I will use a probiotic almost always, but I won't use one with a prebiotic in it. Now you want a probiotic that has at least two bacteria that I'll talk about. One, lactobacillus, that's the main bug in the small intestine. And two, bifidobacter, that's the main bug in the large intestine. And you want the probiotic to show you how many billion of each is on the label because you want a 50-50 blend. You want to equally treat the small intestine as much as you're treating the large intestine. Otherwise, you're going to get an imbalance if you're not treating them both. Other than SIBO, in SIBO, we'll use a probiotic that's mostly lactobacillus because we're really focusing on the small intestine. It's a little bit different. But in general, if you want to take a probiotic, that's how you should do it. You need at least 20 billion for a therapeutic effect for an adult. So anything under that is nice, but maybe not so helpful, right? Studies vary in terms of whether it should be on the shelf or refrigerated. 
There are certainly really good shelf-stable ones, and they can be refrigerated. It tends to look like refrigerated still is a little bit better. There are also studies saying, do you take it with food? Do you take it away from food? And there are also enteric-coated probiotics that say they're fine to be taken away from food, but I still recommend that patients take the probiotic with food. The reason being, when you take a probiotic or anything, a supplement away from food, you're just making a little bit of stomach acid to digest that capsule, whatever it is. But there's not a huge like pH change and the pancreas doesn't make any bicarbonate to neutralize that and alkalinize the gut. So really, it will only get to the level of a small intestine. If you really want it to get all the way down to the large intestine, you want to take it with food because then you'll make more bicarbonate. You'll have a more alkaline environment for the pill to get all the way down and to treat the large intestine. So studies do show with food still seems to be better. Better. So awesome. about 20 billion, there certainly are, you probably have heard of like VSL, the more medical probiotics with like 450 billion in a capsule, 200 billion. I mean, I tend not to go that high because you can kick up a lot of dust when you're kicking out some folks and moving in new, new bacteria. You kick mm -hmm. up a lot of gas and bloating and their concerns that are already there can get worse. So I try not to aggravate and I find that therapeutically I can get the same benefit by using, you know, up to a hundred billion maybe depending on the concern, but never having to go to like 450 billion to treat somebody. So I just try not to aggravate anything. Well, thank you so much for sharing that because I feel like there's so much confusion when it comes to probiotics just because yeah. there are so many now and somebody isn't going to a specialist to get a recommendation. They're just seeing so many different brands. So I'm sure that information oh. that you shared with us will be very, very valuable. Yeah. One thing, may I add one more thing? Of course. Um, so if you have Crohn's, you need to avoid Saccharomyces in your probiotics because that's from a yeast and that's the actual antibody that folks with Crohn's make and it can aggravate the condition. So while Saccharomyces is a fantastic bug that we use to treat diarrhea, food poisoning, gastroenteritis, it's not okay for Crohn's patients. So in whatever capacity they might be using a probiotic, they just want to make sure there's no Saccharomyces, S-A-C-C. H-A-R-O-M-Y-C-E-S, because that can aggravate that condition. So for everybody else, it's okay. But if you've got Crohn's or you don't know whether or not you do, that's just something to watch out for. Awesome. Thank you so much for letting us know that. Now, I have a question for you, because lately in the wellness industry, I see so many you know, people posting about colonics, enemas, detox teas, herbal laxatives, all different ways to sort of clean yourself out. And I'm curious if any of those things are safe and healthy or if there are things that we should be wary of. Sure. And you mean clean yourself out from constipation or detox or? Detox. I mean, constipation okay. as well, but mainly detox. I mean, there's so much now about detoxing and colon cleanses and just trying sure. to detox your body. And oftentimes those things go hand in hand with constipation where those folks need to detox anyway because they're recycling everything. Nothing's getting out. Colonics are fantastic for detoxing and they absolutely should be thought of one if constipation is present. But what they do is they create the biggest bile dump in the gut way up in the small intestine just from doing a colonic down in the large intestine. And that, you're like, okay, what's so great about a bile dump? It's that you keep your toxins solvents and heavy metals stored in the fat tissue under your muscles in the dermis in the fat tissue. And when you're detoxing, you're releasing from that fat and bile helps you, right? Solubilize your fat and fat soluble toxins. So the bigger of a bile dump that you can 
cause, the more toxins you're able to eliminate through the bowel. And so a colonic is really the first thing if someone's really, really toxic and very sensitive, we don't want to push the body to do anything to mobilize more toxins because they're sick. They're already not processing what they can't, their cup is full and they can't process anymore. But a colonic will tip the cup over right? And just dump some of it out. So we've got a little more leeway to mobilize some more later. So it's really nice for that. Also, when we're looking at infections and yeast as being a cause for either the main gut concerns or other issues like other body issues or autoimmune disease, doing a colonic can be really nice because it physically flushes and removes the bacteria, the yeast, the biofilms, the toxins. It physically gets it out, right? So you're just reducing your load. You still have to work on whatever's in there, but you're reducing your load. So colonics are fantastic. There's two types of colonics, open and closed. Open colonics have to do with letting the saline enter your body naturally with the force of gravity. So your body just takes in as much as it's going to take. And that's usually indicated for folks who are having regular bowel movements or only mild constipation, but they can still have a bowel movement on their own. Closed systems use a gentle pressure, gentle force. Nothing is forced, but gentle introduction of saline into the body. And that's really more for a tonic constipation where we've really lost strength in having the bowel movements of people like don't poop, don't care for so long. They just are really impacted and they need help eliminating. So I would encourage an open system if you or in, you know, if you're still able to have a regular bowel movement, that's a great way to help eliminate and detox. What else did you mention in the beginning? You said I, I, colonics. Been, yeah, there's a coffee enemas, herbal laxatives. Oh, yeah. There's so many detox coffee teas enemas. now. Yeah, yeah. I'm a big fan of coffee enemas. It's a hard sell getting someone to do an enema, but so is a colonic. But coffee enemas are a wonderful thing you can do. One, in the privacy of your own home. Two, if you can't afford colonic or, hey, you're quarantining from COVID-19 and the colonic place isn't open. Not now, enemas are not as as thorough and complete as a colonic. A colonic is going to completely flush the entire colon. An enema is only going to get about a third of the way up there, but it does a Coffee enema in particular is fantastic for detox because it it increases our glutathione peroxidase enzyme, which is in the liver, which is an enzyme that helps make glutathione, one of our antioxidants for detoxing. It increases its activity by 700%. Just doing a normal enema, like with saline, right? Except the fluid you're introducing is a nice room temperature coffee, you know, low acid coffee, basically. And I have handouts that I give patients that work through the physiology of how that actually stimulates that enzyme to detox 700%. Kind of amazing. So if folks can do that, that's a really easy way, right? To help mobilize things from the gut as well. So I can't speak individual, you know, detoxing is an individual thing in terms of, of the person's vitality in handling the detox process, what their concerns are, what they're mobilizing, you know, right? So like, what can we, can we expect? So to be very careful in making generalized claims, but there are some really nice detox teas. Those are definitely more gentle and those work more at the level of the liver. Those herbs help the liver enzymes work more efficiently for just processing everything that's in the liver, hormones, toxins medications, supplements, everything that it already deals with, and bile, making bile and helping with digestion. So those are absolutely fine to use. When we use teas medicinally, I would say 
I use them a little bit longer than it says on the box. I would put one or two tea bags in a cup of water and steep it for five to 10 minutes. So a little bit stronger of an infusion. So it's more of an herbal medicine rather than just, you know, a tincture and dandelion teas often used, but there are some nice blends that work really well. So teas are work really well. Castor oil packs. I don't know if you guys are familiar with those. Castor we oil, them. we're using this topically. Yeah, not internally, mm-hmm. but topically. Very anti-inflammatory, but when placed over the liver, helps the liver do its detoxifying phase one and phase two much, much better. So you can actually take a two ounce bottle of castor oil, a little bit on a, on a piece of wool or an old kitchen towel in the shape of a rectangle and place it, you know, the liver is tucked up under the right ribs, right in that right upper part of your abdomen. So I put half of the towel over your ribs and half over the tummy. So you're just covering that whole area and then put a, you know, either a little bit of saran wrap over it so it doesn't get on your clothes or anything. And then a heating pad or a hot water bottle and sit there for 30 to 45 minutes and doing that five days out of a week is another really easy way to help the liver detox. And you could read a book, watch TV, be sitting with your children, doing the homework, whatever. As long as you're just sitting and you know relaxing for that amount of time, that's a really easy way. And you can reuse the wool or the towel, just put it in the saran wrap, keep it in the fridge, use it 20 or 25 times. You can heat it up in the microwave and that's an easy thing that you can do as well. Absolutely. And now that we're quarantined, there's so much time because I feel like that's the one thing everyone's like, I don't have time to do it. I come home and I don't want to stay up for 40 minutes with the castor oil pack. But now that we're home, you, there's really no excuse. Well, and I think we're capable of doing anything we really want to do. It's just, where is it on your priority list? If it's important to you, you'll find room for it or you'll nothing should be squeezed in, especially when we're detoxing. We're not talking about detox should never be fit into a rat race. It's, you need a mental detox as well. It's not like it's a coming down. It's a calming. It's allowing the body to process and probably the mind to process too. I would do news fasting and meditation and some journaling. Like there's a mental piece that goes with that. It's not crammed into like a 20 minute dinner and karate lessons, you know, like there's a time and a space for it. And usually we do that in the spring, you know, as we're kind of coming out of the winter and you know, like kind of, we're coming out of quarantine. It would be a good time for a detox probably. <laughs> but um, yeah, we're home now. We have time. But I would say for most folks, this hasn't been a restful, relaxing time. It's been a stressful time where they've had to adapt to living, working, loving, and now teaching outside the box, right? So while they're home, what I'm hearing from folks is they're like, well, I thought I was going to clean the closets and I thought I was going to get to this and I haven't done any of that. And I'm so disappointed. <laughs> and it's like, that's not the energy right now. This wasn't a vacation. This wasn't a restful state that we're in. This was a, a coming in and sitting in your own energetic juices and seeing how you like that and what you don't like about it and what you do. That's what this is. Is, separating the wheat from the shaft. So I hope folks don't feel too let down if they had some goals for other things that they wanted to do that they didn't get to do. But this time, I think on the whole collective level, wasn't necessarily about that. So just finding the right time so you don't set your so you set yourself up for failure, not right for success. Excuse right. me, instead of failure, because you know that's the idea of a cleanse too. Definitely, and just being kind to yourself. Now, I want to make sure that we wrap right. up because I know you don't have much time left. <laughs> what th- what three tips would you give to maybe that we can do to improve our gut health? And they can just be lifestyle tips. If there's one thing I'll say, it's manage your stress. And I know that sounds so lame. You're like, yeah, stress causes everything. <laughs> but we are incredible. The body is so amazing in its capacity to deal and continuously deal and keep getting you through crap all the time. But we're so delicate and susceptible in ways we don't even realize. 
in the gut, when you're in a stress response, it's, oh my God, we're going to die. Run from the bear. We're dying right now. That's what's happening. It doesn't matter whether it's your kids, your boss, your wife, like whatever, rush hour traffic. That's always the message internally. And the hormone response is always the same. And cortisol is one of your stress hormones. It raises your blood sugar so that you can run from the bear because you're going to die because that's the message. And anytime we're in that state, cortisol just depletes the protective mucus lining we have in our gut from top to bottom, from mouth all the way to the end. And in that lining is where our entire immune system lives. Seven to 80% of our immune system lives there. When that's gone, it makes us more susceptible to our stomach acid, which is why people get ulcers and heartburn, which makes us more susceptible to food sensitivities and infection. I mean, that alone understanding where you are mentally and staying in a good headspace. I mean, stress really is the perception that you don't have the resources to deal with what's in front of you. And so whatever that is for that person or my patient, getting them to feel like they have the capacity to deal with life, whatever the situation is, and they have tools to maneuver, to adapt, to work around if they can't change the situation, giving them power. And then Meditation for me is a mainstay in terms of recommendations for stress because it does everything we want it to do. It manages our hormones, our blood pressure, our mood, everything in the gut we've talked about today. You know, but really whatever it is that you can do to manage your stress, exercise, speak your boundaries, be clear on how you love yourself, how you're not. Really, I think this time overall also is making us look at what is serving us, what is not serving us, what is fulfilling us and what isn't, right? And simplifying and peeling that back and getting back to essentials, but being very clear on how you're managing that. It would be the biggest, honestly, the biggest piece because that sets us up for all the things we've talked about today. Your culture with food, your culture with dining with quality of your food. As far as we can get back to even just simply, it doesn't all need to be organic. Like I said, making better choices, just simple choices is what I try to go over with my patients. Here are great vegetables. Here are great fruits. Here's good, clean meat. Here are good oils. This is good. You know, you should eating more cleanly, cutting out processed foods, getting back to eating as close to the earth as you can. It doesn't need to be a huge meal. You can dump a bag of broccoli in a steamer in 10 minutes and have three meals, three lunches for the week, ready to go. Broccoli and some meat or, you know, a little bit of grains or something. It doesn't have to be hard, but just getting back to simple, simple eating. That's two. And I think the emotional piece goes with the stress piece and say being, being clear on, you know, where you are emotionally. Yeah. That's a great tip. I mean, our emotions definitely have a huge impact on our health and on our gut and on just our overall lifestyle. Yeah. I think I've probably covered it from top to bottom throughout this lecture. I don't know that it's a one, two, three necessarily. You see how complicated it is. You see how we're not, you know, a three-step pro, like it's the 12 to 15 reasons we are way the way we are. We're amazing in our complexity. A true naturopathic approach will look at all of those things to assess where each individual is because they will all need to be addressed and, and they all play into our gut health as well as everything else. So hopefully if you need a naturopath or you're unsure of one who may be near you, check out naturopathic.org, www.naturopathic.org. And that will give you a list under find a doctor, under the tab, find a doctor. It'll give you a list under your city and your state, and it'll show you all the naturopaths that are near you. So I hope that you can get yourself to someone who is well-versed if you have gut concerns. Otherwise I'm always available for consult as well. But Absolutely. And you're in a new office now. So if anyone <laughs> wants to reach you or work with you, how can they do that? 
I'm at Ethos Integrative Medicine, E-T-H-O-S. That's in Arizona, Phoenix, Scottsdale, Arizona. They can go to ethosscottsdale.com. They can call the clinic and speak to Angela, our office manager, directly. The phone number is 480-360-0115. And they can look me up directly as well. So those are probably the easiest ways. Do you do phone consults now as well? I do. Yeah. Do a ton of telemedicine. I love to, and really it's my preference to meet people in person. Obviously these are interesting times, but I like to do a full physical exam if I can do my due diligence. And those visits are like 90 minutes. So I'm really thorough. Uh, I like to spend a lot of time with patients, but certainly I am happy to do that over the phone as well. Yeah. And we hear only the greatest things from you. Anyone out there listening, definitely reach out to you. That's so kind of you to say, and thank you so much for your time. I'm always happy to talk about this and help anybody I possibly can. So really appreciate your time and allowing me to do that today. Thank you guys for joining us today. We hope that you enjoyed that episode as much as we did and that you learned some really valuable information. I know a lot of us, myself included, do not always feel comfortable being super open about our digestion with the ones we love, but it's important to normalize the conversation, to be more open about it, and to understand that it's natural, it's a part of our health, and we have to take the best possible care of it. So I hope that you guys got some great clarity and insight today. As always, please send us any questions or insight at our email, podcast at drinkdowntoearth.com, or get in touch with us on our Instagram at drinkdte. In the meantime, stay hydrated. Now it's time for you to go out there and do at least one small thing to better your health today. Always choose to make your life a healthier, happier, and a more down-to-earth place. Until next time. Cheers to good health.